All right. We're in our series on Jesus that we're going to be in for a while. Uh, last week, we talked about the hidden in plain sight job description of the Messiah that's found in Isaiah and that Jesus understood and that Paul then went on to say becomes our job description as his disciples. Um, I wanted last week to talk about the, the history and the historical evidence of Jesus and the confidence that we can have because of this, uh, but I, I wasn't ready. It, it, I've, I've spent about three weeks getting this sermon into my head and onto paper, and I didn't want it to take that long for me to get it from me to you. Uh, so I've got my old podium up here uh, so I can stay a little bit more in my notes and, and kind of teach at you a little bit today. Uh, I want to give you some of the things that you need to know about the, the historical confidence that we can have that Jesus was a human in history who was born and who lived and who died. And, and that the Gospels aren't just giving us some mythological story, that they are giving us evidence uh, and the story uh, of the most important historical event in, in human history. Um, and, and I think we need this because we talk about, and maybe this is part of the problem, is that we talk about whether or not we believe in Jesus. And, and that sounds kind of like, do you believe in fairies, or do you believe in unicorns, or dragons, or do you believe in ghosts? And when we say those things, what you mean is, I believe that they are either fact or fiction. And when we say, do you believe in Jesus, it, it kind of brings up that kind of a response. But the reality is that that's a nonsense question, if you think of it in those terms. If you're asking, do I believe that Jesus is fact or fiction, in the same way that I'm asking, do I believe that dragons exist or don't exist? And if you're a dragon believer in the room, that's fine. It's just a different conversation. It's a different conversation. Jesus is not someone that we can question his existence or not. And if you're trying to decide, or if you've ever said, I just don't believe Jesus existed, you need to hear what I've got to tell you today, because you are tragically misinformed if you think the existence of Jesus is up for debate. You're just misinformed. But we have to talk about this in the world that we live in, because we don't ever ask, hey, do you believe in, in Julius Caesar? Do you believe in George Washington? We believe that they existed because they are figures in history. We have documentation that they exist. And somehow, we've taken the biblical record and said because it has moral teachings in it, it doesn't count as a historical document. And, and that's crazy. That's crazy. And I want to make this case to you today that not only is the biblical record historically significant and accurate beyond almost any other record, but that it, it gives us confidence from biblical sources and sources outside of Scripture, that we can really trust what's in this book. We can really trust what's in this book by historical standards. It's the case I, I hope to make today. Because if Jesus is real, and I'm going to make the case to you today, uh, because it has to be made, then you have to decide whether or not that's the single most important event in human history. Because you can believe that Jesus existed and think that it's not a big deal. That you can do. You can believe that Jesus existed and think that everything in the Bible is true, but you don't care, you're indifferent. You can make that choice, but it's not reasonable to choose that Jesus didn't exist or that he doesn't matter to history. So we're going to get into this conversation about the historical Jesus 
so that you can admit that he existed and then come to the decision about what side you're going to choose. Whether you're going to choose to be on the side of King Jesus or anything else. That's the choice. So the first question from history that we need to ask, the history question that we're going to start with today, is if the Bible is the only book that talks about Jesus, couldn't the author have just made it up? If the Bible is the only book that talks about Jesus, couldn't the author have just made it up? What if we just switched the genre of this book from history and fact to fiction? Moved it from nonfiction to fiction. We just change which part of the library is in, and then we can go to ignoring it or treating it like any other you know, book by Tolkien or Lewis or anyone else who tells a really good story, but it doesn't actually matter. Is that a reasonable historical question? First answer to that is this. The Bible is not a book. It would better be understood if we considered the Bible a library, a shelf that's full of books written over thousands of years by over 40 authors. It's a library of the 66 most important books about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God's people, and the difference all of those make in the world that we live in. But it's 66 books. In fact, it was 300 years after Jesus and his life before Christians kind of agreed on the 66 books that would be part of the library. It's one of the things that drives me crazy uh, about Renaissance art is you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all writing their gospel in a really, really thick book. And it's like, that's not how they wrote it. It, it was on papyrus and parchment and, and, and scrolls, and they were writing it, and, and it was small, and it wasn't bound. And they didn't know, Matthew didn't say, I'll take the pages between the Old Testament and Mark, please. Uh, that's crazy, but that's how art depicts it, because that's how we so often understand it. But the Bible is, in fact, 66 different books. Not only is it 66 different books, it's not written by one author. And this is one of the important things that's different between Christianity's book and the books of so many other religions and so many other faith groups. When you look at so many of the other religions of the world, one person sat down and said, I have a vision of the best way of life. I have a vision of moral living. And I can make it work in history, and I can make it work in your life and in the world. And then one author puts together a worldview that is often a very good and meaningful worldview about what it means to live a good, moral, and meaningful life. But Christianity is unique. Our book, our library of 66 books is written by over 40 different authors who lived over thousands of years. And we're going to really do we're going to do a visual activity next week if it all comes together as we're planning that'll really help you kind of think differently and better and hopefully change how you imagine the Bible being created and constructed by by really introducing you to these 40 authors and groups of authors who come together to tell one story from so many different points of view and so many different eras of history. But it's not written by one author who just had a cool idea. So many people contributed to the creation of this book that when it all comes together, we kind of go, boy, that's a lot of voices telling this story, telling God's story. 
And when it comes to Jesus and whether or not Jesus is, is historical and how he fits within all of these different books and all of these different authors, so many of the Old Testament books anticipate and prophesy the coming Messiah. We have uh, in the New Testament, the four Gospels, but not just the four Gospels, but Paul's letters are telling historically a lot about Jesus because Paul engages Jesus, even the ascended Jesus, in a way that lets him tell the story of Jesus from a historical point of view. And then the rest of the New Testament authors, over nine authors writing the New Testament, are explaining the difference that this historical person that they saw and talked to other witnesses who saw him makes in the lives of every human that lives as a result of the things Jesus did, the things he taught, and the fact that he got out of the grave. If Jesus got out of the grave, the New Testament authors, all of these different authors are saying, then everything's changed and we need to figure out how it's changed. But there's all of these different books telling us a, a united story about Jesus. Uh, and it's only over the 300 years that these books are collected to become the New Testament as we have it today. And so the second question is this. Uh, the second question is, is Jesus mentioned in books that aren't in the Bible? If you just refuse to accept that there's any possibility that the, the writers of Scripture were unbiased, and they're not unbiased, by the way. They are disciples and followers of Jesus, but that doesn't make them not witnesses. Uh, some of the great biographers of the American presidents were American citizens, but you don't just say, well, they were biased because they were citizens. Let's throw out their testimony. We only accept the biographies of foreigners about American presidents. That's crazy. The best biographies are often written by the people who know someone the best, which are rarely unbiased. But nonetheless, uh, the, if you're unwilling to accept the historical witness of Scripture, the question is, is there any sources outside of the Bible that give us confidence that this Jesus existed and was more real than a unicorn? Well, the answer is yes. Jesus does come up in other books. There's a number of Gospels that were written about Jesus and His teachings that were not close enough to the Apostles' teachings to make the cut to get included in the New Testament. You have the Gospel of Thomas, the secret Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mary, and, and several others that are out there. And, and what's important to know is, is two things about them, is that the church was very, very careful when they came together to choose what books made it into the New Testament and which ones didn't, to say, are these consistent with the traditions of the church given to us by the apostles? because they've been telling us who Jesus is and what He said, and, and we know what the truth is, and there's groups that are coming up that are saying, hey, we think some other things about Jesus that are new and that are different, and that it's not the old stuff of the apostles, but we're just going to write it down anyways. And they come up with these other Gospels. Well, the early church leaders said, we will make sure that what we preserve for human, uh, for all of history to come in front of us, for the generations to come, is accurate to what the apostles have handed down to us. And so some of those, like Thomas and Mary and the secret gospel of Mark, uh, have teachings and sayings and other things that run contrary to the apostles, and they said they don't make the cut to be in the book. But when it comes to understanding whether Jesus was real and historical or not, they do add value. They tell us that even outside of those who are in traditional uh, mainstream Christianity, there's other people saying, hey, this guy said good stuff and did good things, and we want to claim some of it for ourselves. 
It adds to the historical reality that Jesus existed to know that other people, even outside of the church, were trying to claim some of his gospel as theirs and manipulate it for their purposes, but it still shows us that he lived and that he taught. And it increases the number of sources we have affirming that. There were ancient non-Christian historians who also wrote about Jesus and his ministry. One of the earliest was a guy named Thalus, but we don't actually have his writing, but we have the writings of other people quoting him talking about Jesus. We have the writings of Josephus and Tacitus, who were non-Christian historians who could not deny the significance that Jesus' life made on the landscape of Rome and Israel. If you're going to write a history about what's going on in Judea and Galilee in the early part of the very first century, you have to talk about the man Jesus who came from Nazareth. You have to tell the story. There is no sense making any historical record of that time without including the life of this man. If you count the authors who were trustworthy enough to be in Scripture and the ones who weren't, Jesus and his life are recorded in the writing of more than a dozen authors writing within the lifetime of eyewitnesses who would have seen the things he did and heard the things he said. And this is important because it's really easy uh, to stand up several hundred years after someone dies and say, let me tell you about a conversation I had with them one time or that someone else had with them once. I guess not me. I'm not 100 years old. Uh, but let me tell you about a conversation or something they did. Well, how do you prove that? I'm just telling you it happened. Well, we can't go interview other witnesses because they all died. We can't go interview other people. But if you make the claims that the gospel writers are making within one or two lifetimes of the people who were witnesses, then there's plenty of people who can stand up and say, no, I was there. He didn't say that. No, I was one of the 5,000 people that, that showed up and he didn't feed us. That didn't happen. It was a good sermon, but it didn't feed us. There's so many different things that are claimed that could have been negated by people who were actually present in that region and in that time. You can refuse to change your life. You can refuse to change your life because of Jesus or refuse to be a follower of Jesus, but you cannot be a reasonable thinking person and claim that Jesus didn't exist. The historical record is too strong. So if you think that Jesus is made up, in my opinion, I would be cautious telling people that because you're embarrassing yourself. You can say you're not interested in him. You can say you don't like his teachings. You can reject him outright as having any influence on your life, but you cannot say he did not exist without embarrassing yourself. So the third question is this, now that we've established that he existed, what do non-believing historians agree about Jesus? And you might be asking, well, what do you mean non-believing? Uh, what do you mean non-believing historians? Why do I care what they think? Well, this gives us a baseline that people who have no interest in faith, no bias towards Christianity, no uh, influence in their life about what Jesus means for heaven and earth, what is at least what they agree that the historical record confirms? Because that gives us a really good entry point to be like, well, we can't even debate this stuff. Non-historian, uh, non-Christian historians, first of all, start with the premise that all miracles are made up. Um, and, and if I were them, I would too, wouldn't you? 
If your assumption is that there are no miracles, that there's no spiritual world outside of the physical and the observable, you just go ahead and build that into your biases when you approach the text. Now, I'm not interested in them telling me that I'm biased because I do believe, and they're unbiased because they don't. They just have a different set of biases. Their bias is that there are no miracles and that Jesus couldn't have been born to a virgin and that he couldn't have been raised from the dead. It's okay that they believe that, but it is a bias. They weren't there and they don't know. They begin with that assumption. Uh, and so you have to know that historians immediately cut out so much of, of the historical record of Jesus because they assume that miracles can't happen and that Jesus isn't really divine in God's son. Uh, and so once you get to that point, what are the things they do agree on historically? It is almost universally agreed upon by historians that Jesus of Nazareth was baptized by John the Baptist and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And so, again, if you think he didn't exist, you've got a real problem with history. George Washington and Jesus Christ were real and made a difference in the world they lived in. Those are facts of history. Uh, what else do historians strongly, strongly agree on? Here's a few of the things that come up uh, very commonly for historians. That Jesus called disciples who followed him and learned from him. That he caused one or multiple controversies in the temple. I like that one because it just feels so understated. Controversies in the temple. Uh, you know how big of a controversy you have to cause in the temple for them to decide you have to be crucified on a Roman cross? Pretty big controversy, but it's, you know, some kind of a controversy. Uh, that's agreed upon. Uh, he was a Galilean Jew born between 7 and 2 B.C. and who died between 30 and 36 A.D. Uh, those dates are largely set by us trying to figure out how his life fits within the reign of Herod and the reign of Pilate. We have historical records documenting those, and so we can put him somewhere in those ranges. We know from historians, and this again is non-believing historians, that he lived and ministered primarily in Galilee, Judea, that he was from Nazareth, that he spoke Aramaic and possibly Hebrew and Greek as well. So, so here's the deal. If you're here and you're like, I'm just here for my family today, the holidays are close, I don't actually believe in Jesus, that's okay. But when you say you believe in Jesus, what you mean is that historical person doesn't matter to me not that I think fairies are as real as the Messiah. That's the claim you're making, and we need to be clear about that when we talk about it. So the fourth historical question I want to jump into today is, what kind of tools and questions do they ask to determine what is highly historical and what is not? So here's the fun stuff if you like history, and if you don't, just tag along. There'll be some interesting nuggets, I hope, for you. Um, I, love, I love history. It's, it's one of my kind of hobbies. Uh, and so when you look at the tools that historians use to evaluate whether ancient documents are historical or made up, or whether they're historical or, or maybe fabrications, or whether they've been influenced by others, here's some of the tests that they apply. The first one uh, that I want to talk about is this, multiple attestation or multiple sources. Um, if you have someone in history who comes up in lots and lots of historical books and records and documents that has multiple places where their legacy is left behind for us in the document record, then we are more confident 
that they existed and more confident of the things that people claimed that they did. That's pretty common sense, right? If you're a detective today and you get one witness, you have to ask, are they telling the truth or not? Are they crazy or not? Did they see what they saw or did they miss see it and now they have overstated confidence? But if you're a detective and you get hundreds of witnesses that say, uh, yeah, that dead guy, we saw him later. He ate food. We touched him. You have to take that seriously, even if it seems wild. The more sources and witnesses you have in historical records that agree, the stronger the historical testimony. And this one's important. We're going to spend a minute on this one. The, the importance of different forms. When a single story in history is told in slightly different ways, it increases the likelihood that it's true. Now, now, I need to stay here for a minute because we often understand, or our world often understands this, completely backwards when it comes to the historical record of Scripture. So if, and, and let's just start with the common sense version of this first so I can make my case that this is accurate. Uh, parents, if you've got uh, more than two kids, two kids or more, then you know this is true. If your children come up to you separately and you say, hey, what happened over there to this thing? And they tell you a detailed story using exactly the same words, what do you know? They are lying. <laughs> They're lying. And they rehearsed it which means they're lying with practice and skill and great effort. And the longer the story gets, you know, the, the, the bigger the lie is growing, right? Uh, okay, this is true in the historical record as well. Historians use this same tool. Uh, so here's what this looked like in the Gospels. We often imagine God whispering to the Bible authors, and they write exactly what they hear. Or sometimes we imagine that God has his hand on the apostle's hand, and they're just, their hand's just moving, and they're kind of reading along behind it going, ooh, that's a good part of the story. That's what we imagine. And I know that that's what we imagine, because if you go look at Renaissance art of the gospel writer's writing, what you will always see is a creepy angel whispering in their ear while they write in a book this big that is bound, or an angel that is sometimes holding their hand and writing for them. Because that's how we imagine that the inspiration of Scripture works. And I've got to tell you that, that there's two things that, that I just feel very confident about uh, when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. Maybe three things. One, I believe all Scripture is inspired and that God gives it to us. And we can have a high level of confidence that this is true. I believe that with all my heart, and I stake my eternal life on it. The second thing is this. In fact, I believe that one so much I forgot my second two. Um, the second one is that God has gifted these guys with special tools and abilities to write, and Luke tells us that. Luke, if he had God whispering in his ear, wasted his time going out interviewing people and researching. But he says, this is what I did. Uh, Luke says, I went out and I researched from other people what they saw so that, Theophilus, I could give you the best record as I possibly could about what happened, which is a lot of work if he's just going to sit down and just kind of grab his quill and say, Angel, I'm ready. And start writing. 
The other thing that, that I think we need to know is that, ha, here's the third thing. This is what I get for going off my notes. This is what gets you to a sermon on Tuesday. I'll stay back in my notes. But here's the thing you need, is that if God was whispering in the ear of Mark, who, who appears to have written the first gospel, when he finished, what made him need to go to Matthew and go, hey, Mark quit early. Can I get you to write the rest of this? But he gives us these four different versions of the Gospels and Paul's stuff later to, to enhance our understanding and give us different points of view that are written from within the author's life and experience and research and what they saw. And it enhances the historical value of the record that is given to us in this library of books. So when Luke is writing... And he comes across a story, and there's, there's so many different ways you can find this. But when Luke is writing, and all of a sudden he goes, ooh, I like how Mark wrote this, because Mark is one of Luke's sources. Luke says, I've got lots of sources. Mark is one of them. And he'll occasionally go to Mark and be like, man, this is good. He wrote it so well. I can't do better. I'll copy it verbatim. And he just straight plagiarizes Mark. No one's bothered by that then. They're not selling these. It's fine. Uh, but that's what he does. And sometimes he does that from Mark. And when, when Luke does that, and we see, man, Luke and Mark said this exactly the same way. That does not enhance the historical record because it's just Luke repeating what Mark said. But when Matthew comes along and says, hey, I was there, and there's more to it than that. You skipped the parable. I'm adding the parable back into the story you're telling. That enhances the historical record because Matthew saw what Mark only learned about later. And Matthew says, i got to tell you the rest of the story. That is a second source increasing the value of the historical record that we have. Now, the world that we live in today goes, aha, differences, it's all false. No. Meaningful differences that tell the same story from different points of view enhance the historical record and enrich the text. That's what we learn when we allow history to help us to understand the gift that the Bible is giving us. So again, let me say this one more time. When two Bible stories are similar but slightly different, this increases their historical strength and the likelihood that that event happened, it does not decrease it. I understand that some of that's a little bit uncomfortable. My phone number and email address are available if you'd like to visit about it during the week. One of the other great, this is probably my favorite um, way of knowing if something is historically accurate or not, is if it's embarrassing. If something is embarrassing, it is very likely to be historically accurate because it turns out when people write biographies and autobiographies, they don't like to make themselves look stupid. And so if you're going to make yourself look stupid, it's because you were stupid, not because you want to lie and pretend you were. I, and I love that. And part of what I love about this, this particular standard of historical authority is this, is that the apostles, who are the ones that are handing down the stories that become the Gospels, look like idiots all the time. They should be embarrassed over and over again. How many times do the apostles show up in the stories and look like faithless, foolish, ambitious guys who aren't paying any attention to the things Jesus says? All the time. Uh, Peter's probably the main source for Mark. Peter looks like an idiot for the entire Gospels. It's not until Acts that he finally gets to start looking like he understands what's going on, and even that happens slowly. 
It's embarrassing to these guys. And yet when they're telling the historical record about what happens, they can't avoid the mistakes they made and how Jesus helped them to grow through those. And they put them in there. And if they made it up, they wouldn't have made up details that made them look like faithless, foolish, ambitious goons that aren't understanding the plain things Jesus is teaching them. Even Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. That's embarrassing. He dies on a Roman cross. That's embarrassing. Jesus is having to go through all of this suffering, and He doesn't get any respect from, from anyone. It's embarrassing. But it's the story that happened. And because the shame is there, it gives us confidence of its truth. These are historical tools. These are tools that historians use not just with Scripture. They use in all kinds of different documents that claim to be historical. Are there things in there that the authors would be embarrassed about? Because if there is, it's probably true. Shorter versions are considered more accurate than longer versions. All right, earlier I threw kids under the bus. I told parents how to know when their kids are lying. Kids, here's the, your pointer. If you're going to lie to your parents, keep it short. When you start giving too many details, they get suspicious. Same thing's true with the Gospels. Same thing's true in history. Shorter is considered more accurate than longer. The reason that actually is, is because when someone is editing a document uh, and they're going, oh, that doesn't seem right, they rarely fix it by erasing. They often fix it by adding. Now, I'll just clarify this with a little extra note that the uh, author didn't know, but I do. You're welcome. Uh, older versions are more reliable than newer versions. This just makes sense, which is more reliable. News you got from the source or someone that says, hey, I heard this from someone that heard this. If you heard it from someone that heard this, you have older, you have newer information. If you heard it from the source, you have older information. Older information is more valuable than newer, which is a big part of the reason we know the Gospel Thomas is not as historically accurate. It's 100 years newer than the older Gospels that are in Scripture. If the author writes something about Jesus that makes him uncomfortable or he disagrees with, it's more reliable. Every time, I think about the time Peter's getting the visions, and he says, God, I wouldn't do that. And God says, yeah, you're going to do that. God, I'm not going to eat with Gentiles or eat impure foods. And God says, yeah, you're going to do that. Peter doesn't like that. He disagrees with that, and yet it's documented in a way that lets us know that it is more likely to be true. Parables, stories, uh, types of writing that's more memorable and easier to pass down. Most of you probably have stories your grandmas told you when you were children, and you could tell those stories that your grandmas told you 20, 30, 50 years ago with a high level of accuracy to the way your grandma told them to you. Things in Scripture that are like that have a, a higher accuracy historically because they're easy to remember. They're easy to hand down. They're sticky in the oral record in a way that makes them sticky in the written record. And we find over and over again that when we apply these historical measurements and tools to the Gospels, they are remarkably accurate and strong ancient documents. They give us confidence that we can know that not only did Jesus live, get baptized, and crucified, but that the things that they're claiming here are very likely historically accurate in the way that they wrote them and in ways that can give us belief, not just that Jesus is more real than unicorns, but that he's the most important character in human history. 
So when the gospel authors sit down to write these stories, and, and I want to just introduce you to the gospel authors briefly so that you can have a sense of, of who they are and how they're writing these different stories and their perspectives. And, and next week, as I mentioned, we're going to spend a lot more time on the authorship of Scripture in a way that I hope makes an impact on you. But when you look at the gospel writers, and I'm going to call it five because Paul encounters Jesus on the road and calls himself an apostle and writes about what Jesus did extensively in a way that adds to the historical record. Mark shows up and starts writing first, and what we know from church tradition and Scripture is that it's probably John Mark. And, and there's lots of arguments in scholarship today about whether or not these guys wrote it or other people did, and with all the arguments that are out there, to me the most likely thing is either the people that the church claims wrote it wrote it, or their immediate disciples said, hey, we know the teachings and we're going to put them together and write them down for you. I think the record is, is pretty accurate, personally. John Mark is one of the earliest writers of the gospel, and he sits down and he starts writing it, and it's likely that he was not a witness, but he's got the testimony of his close friend and associate, a guy named Peter. And as he spent years after Jesus' ascension into heaven listening to Peter's sermons and stories and teachings and communion talks, he says, man, I've got to start writing these down. Mark is probably a collection of Peter's greatest hits of the stories of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew comes along, also called Levi in some of the Gospels. He's the apostle who's called to leave behind his role as a tax collector. You think it didn't have a little special impact on him when he said Jesus liked to eat with sinners and tax collectors? You think, boy, I know one of them. Matthew has Mark in front of him as one of his sources, and, and some people get hung up on this, but he says, listen, Mark is good, but I've got to build on this foundation, and there's parts that he keeps and parts that he takes out, and, and Matthew's building on what Mark has already done, and, and when Matthew got it, apparently what he says is, Mark, you left out all the parables. I love the parables. We need the parables back. You, you gave this short version of the Passion Week of Jesus' last week, his arrest, his crucifixion. I've got to really tell people the rest of the story. I need to tell them about the resurrection and the stuff that happened after. Mark, you left off the Great Commission. So Matthew starts building out the rest of the story as he saw it with his own eyes telling the stories that Mark left out and adding to them and enriching them and increasing the historical record by showing us what he saw that Mark didn't. Luke was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, and it's one of the things that makes him one of my, my favorite authors in the New Testament. Uh, Luke wrote more of the New Testament. This surprises most people. It surprised me when I learned it. Luke wrote more of the New Testament by word count than Paul did. He just put it in two books. Paul sent lots of letters, less words. Luke puts together a well-researched two-book volume. And he says, listen, I'm going to go ask everyone who saw Jesus and everyone who knows his stories and everyone that saw the things he did, and I'm going to put it together in an orderly account for my friend Theophilus, which means God friend. And I don't know if there was actually a friend that he had named God friend or if he meant you and me who are friends of God and who need to know the orderly events that he researched. But Luke writes this document, and he is an investigator, a researcher, almost a journalist who sought every single detail he could find with one eye on telling the story of the king and one eye always on the story of the kingdom and the work of the Holy Spirit that was to come. About Acts 17 or 18 or thereabouts, Paul gets on a boat and suddenly Luke joins him on the boat and becomes part of the story himself. 
a witness to what's happening at the end of Acts in Paul's ministry because the you or the they and the he switches to we and us. So we know Luke enters the story at some point, but not in Jesus's ministry. But he's able to take so many witnesses and testimonies and weave them into his gospel record. John writes later than the others. The tradition uh, of the church is that, uh, that John is writing later because he may have been the only apostle who did not give his life for the kingdom, who was not a martyr. John uh, likely lived and died of old age. He was considered the beloved disciple, the one who was one of Jesus' closest friends. And when Jesus is on the cross, it's believed that he's the one that Jesus looked at and said, I need you to take care of my mom after I die. And after I'm raised from the dead and I ascend to heaven, please take care of my mom because I'm not going to be able to. That's the relationship he had with John. John likely had copies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and went, I, you guys... I'm going to tell the rest of the story about my friend Jesus. I'm going to tell about the signs that he was the Messiah. I'm going to tell about the, the prophetic patterns that he fulfills over and over again in his life. But I also want to tell people about how human he was and how he interacted with, with Samaritan women and Nicodemus and all of these little personal individual interactions. I want people to see how human he was, how kind and compassionate he was. I love when John talks about Judas he doesn't just, you can, he's still mad. When John talks about Jesus, he's still angry about the betrayer because he's so tightly connected to the one who he's writing about. And he tells the story differently, and he's writing later than the others, and so he also knows that there's false teachings about Jesus that are creeping up in the church, and he starts making sure that the story about Jesus is true to the apostle story and teachings, and, and that it's contradicting these false teachings of later Christian groups. Finally, Paul joins the picture uh, later than the others do, but probably starts writing earlier as he starts his missionary journeys in the middle of Acts, and he starts telling them about uh, who Jesus was and what he did and why he matters. And he goes from persecutor to persecuted. He goes from someone who rejected Jesus to someone who suffered for Jesus, from someone who, who wanted nothing to do with Christianity to someone who became the greatest missionary of the early Christian world that he was the one who said this happened and it's going to turn the world upside down for Jews and Gentiles forever. And so here's, the, here's how we're finishing here. When we think that God whispered in their ears or guided their hands, then the little differences in the story make them fragile and weaken them because they feel like contradictions that, that make the whole story unravel. But when we allow the writers gifted and called by God to tell their stories or the stories of others, they become the greatest writers of the greatest story ever told. When we listen to these and we hear the little differences and the different points of view, it then strengthens their stories, strengthens their testimony, and enriches them and brings them to life through the different ways that they tell about their Savior, Jesus Christ. The passage that was read earlier this morning from John 20, verse 29 through 31, uh, John says this, I'm telling you these stories so that you might believe and in believing have life. It's more than history, but it is history. It's more than facts, but it is facts. 
But if you buy the facts, you still have a choice as to whether or not they lead you to faith. Today I'm going to ask you, do you believe in Jesus? And I do not mean, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is more real than fairies or unicorns? What I am asking you is, do you believe that more than being a key figure in history, that he is the single most important human who has ever lived and that all of human history hinges upon his story? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is king of heaven and king of earth today? If your answer is no, that's okay. You're welcome here. In fact, I would like for you to keep coming back over the next several weeks while I try and change your mind. But if your answer is yes, you believe that Jesus is the most pivotal human who has ever lived, then you have to make a choice. You have to pick sides. Are you ready to join King Jesus, or are you going to follow anything else? If you've never decided to be part of Team Jesus, I invite you to come forward this morning while we stand and sing. I walk with